Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning, Happy New Year to you all as well. We're back here on Football Digest Extra Time for 2023. I'm Ned Keating and joining me this morning is Colin Bromley. Uh, Colin, we've got plenty to get through this morning. Uh, some Premier League action to come, uh, obviously, later on this evening, but there was some last night as well as, uh, as Liverpool lost to Brentford. We'll get on to that later in the show. But obviously, being January, there is that small thing of a transfer window. Um, perhaps a bit more of a... An interesting one this time of year uh, than, than usual. Obviously, January ones are normally uh, about kind of signing players that, that maybe you need to kind of fill gaps in your squad. But where we've just come out of a World Cup, you feel that this one might have a little bit of a different feel to it. There might be some bigger players that are angling for moves, stars of World Cups, perhaps, you know, the likes of, of Sofi and Amrabat from, from Morocco is definitely being linked about uh, with, with lots of top clubs through Europe. Um, but one player that had a shall we say, an OK World Cup, I think, Connor, was uh, was Jao Felix for Portugal. Obviously, they went out in the quarterfinals to Sofia and Amrabat to Morocco in the end. Um, but Jao Felix looks like there are plenty of Premier League suitors uh, lining up for him. Uh, possibly a loan deal we're hearing, maybe a permanent. You never know what's going to happen in these January windows. Might not happen at all. Um, but it looks like Arsenal, United and Chelsea are all uh, linked with the Portuguese attacker, as well as perhaps surprisingly Aston Villa, given where they currently are in the table. Um, what do we think of of Shao Felix then, then Connor, and, and you know these these moves for him? He was before he moved to Atletico Madrid in, in 2019, or I think it was 2019, wasn't it? I can't remember if my maths are letting me down. It's the first day back at work. Forgive us. Um, but in terms of you know before that move to Atletico, he was spoken about as as perhaps a target for several Premier League clubs back then. Now that he's kind of advanced a bit more, matured as a player because he was extremely young back then, still a teenager. Now that he's kind of matured and developed a bit more, would he suit the Premier League a bit better now than? if he'd moved those years ago? I think um, he, he seems to have fallen out of fear with Diego Simeone, hasn't he, at Atletico Madrid? And I think because of that, you're probably going to end up buying low on a player with a very high ceiling. So I can kind of understand the the interest. But because there's so many Premier League teams seemingly interested in him, I suspect the fee will probably be much higher than they would expect. A loan deal would probably make sense for all parties, you would think. If if Atletico Madrid don't fancy him and they're having a bit of a midland season this year, I don't think they're doing anywhere near as well as they would like. Um, if he can go out on loan to a Premier League club, maybe get himself eight, nine goals from now at the end of the season, um, they'll probably look at getting a really big fee in the summer, particularly if he you know, did help, say, Arsenal win the Premier League title, you know, they would go all out in the summer to make a, a permanent deal. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting transfer in the sense that it's not often you see a 23-year-old international who's done very well in his career so far sort of come on the market and, and look available. That doesn't normally happen. Normally teams would chase him, but he wouldn't be up for sale. But it seems quite obvious that that marriage of him and Atletico Madrid is possibly coming to an end. So I think... Personally, I think Arsenal seems to make a lot of sense because, you know, they don't have Gabriel Jesus for a few months. I think he'd kind of fit into their recruitment model. I don't know if he'd necessarily fit in at Chelsea because Chelsea, you know, we'll we'll probably talk about it, but they're just about to splash, you know, a hundred million pounds on a player. So I don't, I don't see them necessarily being in the run in there. Aston Villa, I, I would guess that's just Wishful's thinking from their part. I don't see them being interested in a player like him, but they did sign Philip Coutinho last January. So maybe... 
maybe they do have a pull, but I wouldn't necessarily think so. So I, I think Arsenal seems to make the more sense. Um, but to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't move because I think Atletico Madrid will probably be commanding a huge loan fee. I think I saw it was £21 million. Pounds. There's a lot of money to spend on a player for six months. Um, and I'd be surprised if if a Premier League club was willing to stop up that kind of figure. The, the first three clubs that I mentioned that were linked with him, uh, Arsenal, Man United and Chelsea, do you think he's the final piece in in the jigsaw for these clubs? You know, you look at Arsenal, as you touched on there, Gabriel Jesus, he's going to be out injured for a little bit. So they'll probably be in the market for a similar attacker. And João Felix probably fits that bill quite well in, in terms of a similar mode to, uh, to Gabriel Jesus. Chelsea uh, are a enigma, I think is probably the best way to describe him under Thomas, uh, not under Thomas Tuchel, he's long gone, bless him. Uh, for, sorry, sorry, Thomas, and, and sorry, Graham Potter as well. But under Graham Potter, um, trying to work out the style that they want to play, how they want to play, what kind of striker that they want. Would Jao Felix be that man? Would he be more of a deeper player for them? Um, and Man United as well, obviously talk about them looking for a new striker, probably a new number seven. It's quite convenient that they've, you know, <laughs> one Portuguese number seven might be replaced by another at Man United. Who knows? Um, but in terms of where he might fit into those squads, is he the final piece in the jigsaw for these teams? And, and that's why they're interested in. But I think, you know, we're talking there that these teams need a... a traditional number nine aren't we you know Man United yes they've got forward players but they, d- they don't seem to have that pure striker you know that that Erlen Haaland type figure what Liverpool were hoping Darwin Nunes would be and he probably still will end up being um, even though he's, he's struggling at the minute Joe Felix isn't that type of player he's more of a, a generic forward you know can play in a lot of different areas in the final third but I don't think he's ever going to be a 20-25 goal a season striker that's not what he is so in terms of him being the final piece for them teams, Arsenal probably are the ones, as I said before, it makes more sense for him to go to because they, do, I know Jesus is injured at the minute, but Jesus is there, number nine, and will be for the next few years. Chelsea, I think, need a proper striker and they're struggling to score goals. You watched them against Nottingham Forest the other day and they were just woeful up front, relying on Kai Havertz, who's not a striker to be their striker. Abamyang has just not worked since he's moved there. That's been a poor bit of business for them. They desperately need a striker, a genuine proper striker, a Romelu Lukaku, who they had last year, that kind of player. And I think Man United's the same. You know, they've got plenty of players who fit in that sort of forward attacking player. Anthony's one of them. Um, I, I think Marshall and Rashford aren't genuine number nines. You know, they're, they're often better used on the wing. And I think Man United could really do with a, a proper number nine. I, I just don't think that. Joe Felix is that so I don't necessarily think that he is the final piece for a lot of these teams I think teams in the Premier League at the top end are looking for 20-25 goal a season strikers that's what they want and I don't think Joe Felix is that um, I don't know if you disagree Ned. do you think that I'm talking nonsense or do you think that, that, that he is the final piece for them no, I think you're correct. Um, and especially when you think about how the Premier League plays and what you're speaking about there, I, th- I see him more as a, a kind of an inside forward. I think is how you describe it, you know, kind of how Messi, you know, kind of remastered that role, cutting in from the from the, the, the wings for Barcelona and then scoring. And, and likewise, Ronaldo, what he was doing in his pomp at Real Madrid, he wasn't that out and out centre forward. He was the one that would come in from the wing and, and would fire into the top of the net from there. Um, and I think the way that the Premier League is... Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't think Xiao Felix is tall enough to be your out and out centre forward. That being said, you know, going back to United, we, we spoke about it in the summer. We all thought that Sancho Martinez was too small to be a Premier League centre half, and how wrong we've all been proven. He's, he, he's been a, you know, aside from that dodgy debut at Brentford or, or that dodgy game against Brentford, sorry, um, he's, he's been phenomenal for them, really, um, and has struck up such a great partnership this, uh, with Ferran, despite that, that kind of lack of air, uh, aerial dominance that perhaps maybe you'd expect from a, uh, or, or want from a Premier League defender. So maybe Maybe Felix can prove us wrong there um, in, in terms of winning those aerial battles or, or providing something a little bit different for these teams. But yeah, he'll be he'll be your kind of additional player contributing to it. Um, I can't remember the pundit. I think it was one of the guys on BT Sport at the weekend. Might have been Robbie Savage, um, lovely columnist for, for our Daily Moon newspaper as well. If he's not Robbie and I've got that completely wrong, I do apologise. But they were speaking about how the top teams you want probably three players that between them can contribute 60 goals if, if you're going to achieve something good this season. Um, so, you know, you can have an out-and-out goal scorer that, that provides, you know, I mean, look at Haaland at Man City, you know, he's probably going to get 30 or 40 of them. So if you have guys that can chip in, then with 15 goals a season, maybe that's what Shao Felix can do between 10 to 15 a season. Then obviously chipping away at that idea of, of needing three players to contribute at least 60 you start to kind of take out a big chunk of that between, um, you know, if you can have someone that's a, not your out-and-out goal scorer, but definitely a second uh, kind of option that can, can can provide almost a quarter of those goals, that would be quite handy to have for most of those teams. Yeah, and I, I see the interest. I understand why teams are looking at Yao Felix because I think he, his record at Atletico Madrid, I mean, I'll, I'll have a look. I've got his stats up here. He's been 9, 10 and 10, these three full seasons here. So, uh, in a, a decent Atletico Madrid team, a very defensive Atletico Madrid team. To be fair, they are they aren't necessarily known for their their goal scoring prowess. I, I just wonder if the money that they're talking for him is going to be too much for for teams to stomach. Um, that being said, you know you saw what Liverpool paid for Darwin Nunes in the summer, who who played at, at Benfica, and you know. Yao Felix has played at Benfica and played in the Champions League and Atletico Madrid. Maybe at the age he is 23, teams might think it's worth the risk. But you look at what, say, Arsenal have in Bakayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli in particular. Does Yao Felix get in above them? No, I would would definitely say that he would struggle to do that. Yes, he might get in ahead of, uh, in the Eddie and Ketty at the minute because um, Gabriel Jesus is injured, but that's not a long-term thing and, and whether or not you'd spend that sort of money. I think Arsenal's needs are not necessarily that position. Um, if I was them, I, I probably wouldn't be putting that sort of money on a player like Yao Felix. But at the end of the day, it's a, if you think that he is a, a five-star player, a player that can be world-class and you're able to pick him up at a cut-price deal because he's, he's fell out with Atletico Madrid, I can see the attraction of doing that deal. But personally, I just think it's a it's a big risk. It's a big amount of money to spend, especially if you're a team like Arsenal, and, and they seem to be the ones who are um, heaviest linked with them to to rock the ball and bring that in and, and try and get him in that that front three when their front three is working so effectively. At a minute, I, I would just I would have a bit of trepidation if I was Arsenal spending that sort of money.
as ever, uh, we do appreciate any comments that do come in whilst we are uh, recording. I love the show. Uh, we do have one from Flame Kid Kevin. Uh, he says, Manchester United must get that deal done for João Felix. He belongs to them. Uh, <laughs> I think Kevin obviously has his sights set on uh, <laughs> Felix replacing Ronaldo in the number seven shirt for United. Um, but kind of sticking with Arsenal a little bit, um, it seems obviously they're very interested in adding to their attacking uh, options this window. Um Mikhailo Mudrik from Shakhtar Donetsk looks to be another name that has been linked with them. Talk about them submitting a bid. Um, you do wonder whether or not, obviously Arsenal are on the lookout for a, a, a forward, uh, some sort of attacking player in this window. And that is probably down to the injury suffered by Gabriel Jesus at, at the World Cup, which is unfortunate. Looks to be a few months on the sideline. But you do wonder whether or not this is because Arsenal feel like they've got this big opportunity right now, right in front of them. Teams dropping points, slipping up. Um, that they've not found themselves in this position at the top of the Premier League and in a title challenge for a number of years, is that forcing their hand a little bit in this market that they want to go out, they want to make sure that they make the most of this opportunity? Because quite frankly, you never know when you're going to be back in these positions again, do you, in, in football? And especially with a, a team as dominant as Man City have been in recent years, Liverpool, you'd expect them to come back perhaps next season. You don't know how the Ten Hag revolution is going to go with Man United, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is Arsenal's only opportunity to win a title, but it's a great opportunity. And you wonder if that injury, that position that they're in, is perhaps forcing their hand a little bit and they're going to go into this January window. Yeah, but I think you, you look at that game against Brighton at the weekend, you know, they get four goals against one of the best, one of the better teams in the division. Certainly a hard game to go to Brighton away. You saw Chelsea got spanked 4-1 there the other week. So, you know, it's not an easy place to go. And they went there and yes, there was a, a bit, shaky towards the end but ultimately was a very comfortable win they scored goals at the right time they went 1-0 up early on scored just after half time as soon as Brighton got a goal back they went the other end and scored so you know if, if you were asking you'd feel very comfortable about your, the position you're in right now and, and this is why it's interesting that they're so heavily linked with these forward players and um you know, you mentioned, I don't know, Mudrek, is that his name? Uh, <laughs> you mentioned him before. I can't when he comes him, to the Premier League, you'll learn how to pronounce his name yeah, better. That's you know, that'd be fine, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you look at his stats, his stats aren't overwhelming. He seems to be a winger, uh, not a, a number nine. And I don't see why Arsenal would be in for for wingers. Um, they're saying £65 million is what's wanted for him. It's a lot of money in. Yes, I get that Arsenal probably think we need to add a couple of players just to get us over the edge. Um, you know, you look at what Liverpool did last season with Luis Diaz, you know, they're thinking of that level, like, oh, we'll bring in a player like him and and see if we can um, continue this momentum and get a, a tune from another player. But the other thing is, is do you want to rock the boat? Do you want to bring in a player that might fundamentally change how you play, which can cause you issues and it's whether or not Mikel Arteta and Edu think it's worth that gamble. But if I was Arsenal, I'd be tempted to kind of stay pat with what you have. Maybe try and bring in a, a lone striker um, just to cover this Jesus injury. Or if there's a player that you think can do you well in the long term, who's a forward, maybe go after them on a permanent deal. But I, I just don't see why Arsenal would be trying to rock the, the, the team that they've got at the minute that's just doing so well. In terms of whether or not they do submit a bit and whether or not they are successful for Mudrick um, in this January window, does the fact that Arsenal are going for a title do have 
some you know injuries in that final third. Um, make it easier for Shakhtar to, to play a little bit of hardball when it comes to figure. You quoted their sixty-five million pounds. Um, obviously, the value of, of anyone, you know, what, what, what's the old adage? The value is how much you're willing to pay for anything. But does it mean that that Shakhtar can perhaps, you know, all right, they might have accepted, you know, kind of 50, 60 million in the summer, but now they're kind of thinking, well, Arsenal a little bit of need here. They might need players to to pack out their their attacking options where they've had injury. So maybe we can add five, maybe we can add 10 uh, on, onto the price tag a little bit here. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a Premier League-wide issue, isn't it? You know, I think whenever the Premier League team comes in for a player, you know, a team in Europe adds probably 20% to that figure because they know that Premier League teams have money. Um, I would say that, in a lot of ways, you are correct in the sense that Arsenal, you know, it seems that there's a need, the press around them signing a striker, you know, there's no smoke without fire. Clearly, they are interested in bringing in players in this January window. But they're also top of the Premier League. They're also, I think, seven points clear at the top of the Premier League. They're also coming off winning all their games so far over the Christmas period. So, you know, are they in a, a weak bargaining position? It's not like they've just lost a couple of games and their lead at the top start with a one point and everyone's saying that they're blowing the title. They still look very strong and, and anyone who watched that game against Brighton would say that they look like a title contender. They looked like the real deal because that's a game we've seen Arsenal lose so many times for the last 15 years. You know, even back to when Arsene Wenger was in, these were games that Arsenal lost. I remember in 07-08 Arsenal going down to Birmingham when they had that horrendous injury um, to the I can't remember his name now the striker Eduardo yeah Eduardo um, that was Arsenal's soft underbelly that was the beginning of that that theme that has lasted all this time they went there they dropped a, a silly draw and fell out the title race there and then and that Brighton game was a prime candidate for that sort of Arsenal performance and they didn't do that so I think Arsenal are not in that weak of a position because they actually, they don't need to sign a player. They might want to sign a player to help them take themselves to the next level. But I don't, I think Mikel Arteta would be happy if he came out this January window with the exact same 11, uh, well, sort of 25 players that he has right now. I think he'd be very, very happy with that. And as long as they don't lose anyone, which I don't think that that's likely to happen either. So, I don't think they're in a, a position where they have to to panic by, you know, which is it's kind of what the suggestion was, is that they're in a position where they, they might win the title and, you know, should they go out and spend that money? I don't think they have to do that. Uh, we've had another comment in this one from Mark uh, saying Mudrick is not a bad player. However, his valuation by his club is way above the market, especially when he is more of a backup to Martinelli. I think that's something that you were you were touching on there, Connor, as well, about the fact that you don't see him slotting straight into this uh, to this starting eleven. You kind of feel that it's almost too much money to spend on a on a player to add depth to your squad. Just uh, just finally on Arsenal, though, Connor, and I think you you touched on it there quite a lot about this. Um, you know whether or not they are actually genuine I mean obviously they are genuine title contenders there's seven points clear as we go into January you know if they're not title contenders now you never will be um but can they actually go the distance is, is the bigger question you know you spoke about their mentality there there have been genuine questions about it throughout you know you, as a Spurs fan um obviously I enjoyed the meltdown that Arsenal had last season at, at, at Tottenham just before the end of, the, of, of that campaign where they missed out on the top four and it's those kind of matches those kind of moments and they seem to have forgotten about those this year, that that's not a thing anymore. Arsenal don't have, you know, you mentioned it there as well, this tag of soft underbellies. I think Patrice Ever used to call them babies, didn't he? They don't seem like that anymore. They look like full-grown adults this season and they know exactly what they want and how to get there. 
is 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 that what you see as well? That from now until the end of the season, it is a case of whoever can get above Arsenal will end up winning the Premier League title. I think that whoever finishes that is correct. Whoever finishes above Arsenal win the Premier League. Um, I think for me, I want to see what happens when Arsenal maybe drop points in a game they shouldn't. You know, you look at the fixtures that you've got coming up. You know, Newcastle at home, which is tonight. Not an easy game. Newcastle flying at the minute. You know, I can't remember the last time Newcastle lost a game of football. It's it's, it's like that long ago. Tottenham away. It's a derby game. It's it's going to be difficult. Man United at home again. You're playing Man United. That's difficult. Everton away at the start of February. That's a game that Arsenal have traditionally struggled in. And then Brentford at home. We know how good Brentford are. Then you got Man City away. That's not a kind fixture list. You know, taking you through the middle of February. They will drop points in that time. It's it's inevitable. Look at the the, the amount of games we've got to play and the quality of the opponents and the the difficult away games they've got. How do they respond to that though? You know, and if they do drop points, say against Newcastle tonight, which you know, to be fair, wouldn't be the end of the world if it was a draw because Newcastle are playing so well. But how do they respond? Do they respond to that by crumbling a little bit more because Man City have brought the points gap to five points? You know, how how do Arsenal deal with the 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 actual tightness of that race? Because we saw at the end of last season, they were miles clear of Tottenham. Miles. All they had to do was, was pretty much win one of like three games towards the end of the season. They would have got in the top four, but the, the, they couldn't deal with the pressure of that situation. Now, can they this season do that? Well, that, that's that's the big question. The only thing that's going to stop Arsenal winning the title is probably Arsenal themselves because City have dropped the points. City have dropped more points than probably what they did in all of last season. So they've given them a gateway to win the title. It's just whether or not Arsenal have that mental strength and this is why we're talking about the Brighton game and the West Ham game. You know, they were losing against West Ham. They could easily, easily in the past have lost that game, but they didn't. They came back and they, they won it. The Brighton game, a difficult away game against a very good team. They came through that. So they've, they've passed two tests there, but they've got more tests to come. And the more they win these games and get through these tests and pick up points where maybe they wouldn't have last season, the more confident they'd be. But I think the main thing for Arsenal, it's just that mental strength. You know, can we get a 33 games this season, head into the last five, and they've only got to win three to win the title? Will that play on their minds like it did last season when they ended up, you know, spectacularly falling out the top four race? I mean, even Antonio Conte, I heard him talking about it last season. He said it was a miracle that they got in the top four. And that miracle was basically the fact that Arsenal were terrible for that last period of the season and, and let Tottenham in. And they can't allow that to happen again this season. Talking of soft underbellies, Arsenal may well have got rid of theirs, kind, but um, might be a tag that we can put on Liverpool now. The the, the performance at Brentford uh, on, on Monday was, was well, it left a lot to be decided, quite frankly, didn't it? Um, especially in the first half, they looked at sixes and sevens, even in the second half, defensive errors as well, with Ibrahim Akanate um, falling over, I think is the polite way to put it. I know Jurgen Klopp suggested that he should have been disallowed, but I think if we're we're calling for fouls on that, we'll see it. We'll see it. We'll never see a game played because the referee will be blown up all the time. Um a dreadful result for Liverpool, quite frankly. Um I want to say what went wrong. I know what went wrong. It was the defence, really, wasn't it? They, they were just Brentford found a way to press Liverpool's defence, cause these errors and and credit to them, you know, and it's not the first big team that, that Brentford have beaten A this season or at home. They did it to Arsenal last year, did it to Man United uh, back in August. They did it at Man City as well before the World Cup too. You know, 
all credit to Brentford. They've got a way to play against these big sides, but Liverpool would have been expecting to win that game last night. Yeah, and I think you used the word dreadful, and and that that's the only way to describe it. I, I watched the post game analysis with Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville, and I agreed with a lot of what Gary uh, Jamie Carragher had to say. You know, they haven't invested in the midfield for nearly five years. You know that it's it's criminal when you see the the amount of quality players that they have around the pitch, and they've just brought in Cody Gakpo. And I don't think Cody Gakpo was necessarily a need for Liverpool. I don't think they needed to sign him right now. They 100% need a central midfielder, though, defensively. And you, you saw the goal they conceded against Leicester the other day where Jewsby Hall just literally ran through the middle of their team. Nobody went anywhere near him. He picked the ball up nine at the halfway line, ran 50 yards and then scored. And nobody got close to him. That's the issue that Liverpool have. And, and they are, for a Jurgen Klopp team and what we've seen and been so used to, they are uncharacteristically so soft and weak and and dreadful. I mean, you can't use another word. I mean, that's how poor it was last night. Fair enough, Brentford. We know they're no mugs. You know, we've seen them win at the Etihad earlier this season as well. Um, they're a good team, but the, Liverpool shouldn't be conceding the goals that they conceded last night. And, you know, the, the corners, the, so poor on the corners. Brentford dominating them physically. Um, in that aspect. And then, you know, you mentioned the Kanate goal. You know, your centre-back has got to be stronger than that. You know, he's got to be able to hold up Brian and Buemo. And, you know, I saw Thomas Frank's press conference and he said that 10 times out of 10, Kanate would win that battle and, and he didn't. And Klopp suggested it was a foul, but that's just laughable. And that, that's typical Jurgen Klopp where he tries to deflect a defeat and deflect it onto something else. Often he talks about the opposition's tactics and their time wasting and their, you know, their football game management in a in an evil way. But last night the only thing he could point out was a a very, very, very weak claim for a foul. And I think Liverpool are in a in a really interesting position. You know, they've got an aging team, a team that seems to be it's lost its identity, to be honest. Um that they look like very much like when Arsenal had had, had their invincible season and then sort of it kept the kind of the spine of that team, but it changed. It changed from being what it was into something very, very different and was still a strong team, but it became almost a parody of what they were initially. And you, you do really worry about Liverpool. I mean, I think they'll probably still will get top four this season just because they'll pick up points at home. But that, that's a it's a real worrying sign. And I think, you know, they, they've got a decision to make as a football club right now. They're at kind of a crossroads as to how they want to approach the future. And be interested to know what your view on this is, Ned, you know, whether or not this is just a bad little run they're having. I mean, we saw them a few seasons ago in the pandemic, had a dreadful year, whether they were just truly awful all season after Christmas. You know, is it just that and they'll bounce back again next season? Or is there something kind of long-term in there and they need drastic changes over the next 18 months? Not so sure about drastic. I think definitely they need a midfielder. You look at where else they've shaken. Allison will be around for a few more years. You look at the kind of spine of the squad. Canata had a poor game last night, but he's he's still a good player. Um, most areas of the pitches, um, or most area of the pitch, sorry, um, they've got, you know, even up top, they've now kind of pretty much replaced that that kind of front three you can see going forward. Fabio Carvalho is going to develop, develop, develop. Um, Cody Gappo's come in. Luis Diaz, you know, that could be the next Salah, Mane, Firmino for, for the next five, 10 years. But yeah, you're right. It is that midfield that that needs you know strengthening. What was it last night? Harvey Elliott 
not having a good season, I think, or, or at least since the World Cup, he had a good um, good period before the World Cup. Sorry, I will say, but but kind of since since then, um, and was at fault for the, for the second Brentford goal. Um, concerns about him, whether or not he'll be long term a, a central midfielder. Um, Thiago, great player. I just wonder whether or not he came to the Premier League too late and it's you know too quick, too physical, and 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 his long term injury ways. I think he was never helped by the fact that he had injury and COVID and everything else when he first came to Liverpool, um, and it's just not really allowed him to settle. I know he had a better season last year, but I just think that that's kind of still playing in his mind. And obviously, Father Time is catching up with him. Likewise with Fabinho, with Henderson, with all their other options in midfield. Milner's what is he forty seven, forty eight now? I kid, he's obviously only a, uh, in his late thirties, but. These players have been around for a long time, but they've not been replaced. You know, even when they lost Genie Wijnaldum, who came in to replace him? Where's where's that next? You know, or at least obviously they did bring in Thiago. That's something when when um, when Genie went. But what's next? What's next? What's next? You know, where's this next change coming for Liverpool? Um, they need a midfielder. Um, it looks like they're going to miss out on one target as well, kind of in, in Enzo Fernandez. Um, you know, as you touched on earlier in the show, we were going to speak about it. The fact that I think Chelsea are, are closing in reportedly on a £127 million move for him. Um, and Chelsea are happy. You know, they splashed the cash big in the summer. They're coming in for a midfielder now. They're not worrying about that. They're, they're going straight in. And I wonder if that could be the difference here between you know, if Chelsea do bring in Enzo Fernandez, a great midfielder, a, a target for Liverpool, that can be the difference between Liverpool making the top four and not making the top four. And likewise, Chelsea perhaps getting into the top four, bringing in a bit more uh, robustness, shall we say, in, in the engine room. Great player, great talent, but he brings that kind of tenacity as well, I think, uh, which which Liverpool could massively do with right now. I think <clears throat> Chelsea, with, with Enzo Fernandez, he's, he's played less than 30 professional games at a top level. Um, well, in Europe, anyway, I know he's played in Argentina. That's a, that's a very much a, the typical World Cup sign, very El Hadjouf sort of vibes, where you 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 see a player do well at an international competition. Oh, the dog obviously disagrees with what I'm saying there, <laughs> getting, his, getting his opinion in. But I just think that that's a that sums up where Chelsea kind of are. I'll let you finish this off while I I let the, the dog finish off his point. Yeah, no, no, I get what you mean, but I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't think you can. I, th- I think the signs are there. I think the talent is there from Enzo Fernandez. Um, you know, and you had the big clubs around Europe sniffing around, and even even in the summer and, uh, before the World Cup as well. I get your point about you know, one one kind of swallow doesn't make a summer. You know, just because he played good at the World Cup, you kind of don't know what he's going to come to next. But you know. Liverpool do need a midfielder. They're going to miss out on one target. Potentially, they could miss out on another one because by the sounds of it, Chelsea have jumped ahead of them in the race for Jude Bellingham. Although it's probably, let's be honest, he's probably Real Madrid, uh, where he'll end up uh, <laughs> um, next season as well. So they're going to miss out on two of their big, uh, two of their big transfer targets there. And you kind of wonder where's the next kind of generation coming in midfield. I think I think a big issue for Liverpool this season, though, as well, is that is the former Fabinho. Um, he's not been as up there as great as he has been in recent seasons um, but you do kind of wonder whether or not they, they need that needs to be the next area you know they've replaced they've replaced their front line they brought in you know three new players so that will be fine um, like I said defence aside from maybe Van Dijk um, looking for a long term replacement for him um, whether or not you start blooding Joe Gomez a bit more whether or not Joe Gomez stays and goes you know Robertson's still got time on his side Alexander-Arnold Canate both still got time on their side as says Alisson that midfield whether it's Quite frankly, I think it has to be this this window that they need to address it. Um, and if it's not this window, there's a chance that they will miss out in the top four, which will then make it harder to address that in the summer because then you're selling, trying to sell to these targets, these players, 
the idea of, oh, we're not in the Champions League. We will be next year, though. If you come to us, we'll, we'll get back in the Champions League. You've seen what it's like with Man United. Once you drop out, it's hard to get back in. And once you are back in, it's hard to stay back in it as well. And, and if Liverpool drop out, they, you know, I'm not saying it's the end, but it, it, as you said there, you know, a couple of seasons ago when they nearly missed out on it and, and all this talk about how much it would have cost them and how much it would have set them back and who might have had to leave and everything else. And again, those question marks, if they were to miss out in the Champions League because they haven't maybe signed a midfielder this January, will again come back into play. Yeah. And I think you look at, you talk about the ages there. And I think with defenders, you can kind of get away with, like Van Dijk will probably be able to be Liverpool's linchpin at the back until he's with 33, 34 and he'll be fine. That midfield area, Jordan Henderson. I mean, I love Jordan Henderson. I think he's a great player, but he was legs. That's kind of what he's always been. He's been a runner. He'll probably do the most running in the team, but you can't do that sustained into your 30s. It's just not going to happen. And you have to, if you're him, you have to kind of diversify, kind of like what James Milner has, and be able to make your career longer by maybe changing your role. And I don't think Henderson's quite ready to do that. And you're right. This this window is the perfect time for Liverpool to uh, certainly put a band aid on that midfield. Like I think if they were able to buy in a dynamic twenty two year old defensive midfielder who could do the things that their current midfield can't do, you know, be the legs, be the cover on that back four because they're not protecting the back four at the minute. The way that they're conceding goals, you know, you talk about Van Dijk being an amazing centre back, but if he's not got that protection in front of him, there's nothing any centre back can do in the world. And that's what Liverpool desperately need. They need somebody who's just going to sit in front of that back four, but also have legs to get around the pitch and, and make sort of crucial interceptions. The things that Henderson used to do, but probably can't do as well now. And Thiago, we all know he he isn't legs in the middle of the park. He's technically a fantastic footballer, but he isn't, you know, he isn't necessarily going to be able to do box to box for for ninety minutes. And I think Liverpool can this this window certainly begin the process of changing the midfield. But the, the thing is, is are they willing to do it? Because we all knew in the summer that they needed to do this and they didn't do it. You know, we've known for actually quite a while that Liverpool's midfield has been their area where they've really, really lacked. So, you know, are they are they willing to to make them changes? Are they willing to to, to move out that old guard that has done so well and, and replace them? I just don't know if Jurgen Klopp's quite ready to do that. I think he still has trust in this in this group and you know we talk about when I was rudely interrupted by my, my Bartland talk we we're talking about Chelsea and their business I feel like they're, they're a club that's lost in what they are trying to be um, I, I I just don't even understand the logic of replacing Thomas Tuchel with Graham Potter and Potter's came in and it's looked like a rabbit in the headlights he just doesn't look ready for that job and Chelsea looks so poor there's no identity there there's no there's just nothing to get excited about if you're a Chelsea fan right now. I, I I really, really worry about the sort of position they're in. And I know, you know, bringing in Enzo Fernandez, it might have a, a big positive impact for them, but I think their problems lie much deeper, much, much deeper than, than those issues. Even the, the sign of Raheem Sterling in the summer, uh, I, I just watch how he's playing at Chelsea compared to how he played at Man City. And he just looks a totally different player completely different to what we've known Raheem Sterling to be. You know, I, I really worry about where Chelsea are going to be because I also don't think they've got a, a a strong recruitment process. You know, you look at Liverpool and what you would say is, is yes, they're midfield short, but 
their recruitment process is strong. They've signed players that fit what they're trying to do. And you always look at the players that Liverpool bring in and generally go, yeah, that's a, that's a decent signing and that works for what they want. Chelsea just seem to be scattergun. Just to the start of the Roman Abramovich days, just kind of, oh, he's a good player. We'll, we'll sign him. And it doesn't work. Not in this day and age. Not when you're trying to compete with Chelsea, uh, with Man City and Liverpool and Arsenal. It's, it's not going to happen anymore when they've got strict recruitment policies in and it's going to take Chelsea a long time to get back to that level in my opinion alright but it'll make for a cracky January transfer window if they are just going to go yeah, I'll have him and I'll have him and I'll have him um, Connor we are out of time this morning but just quickly before we go I'm going to make this just two words uh, predictions from yourself uh, for that top four race I think we can say that Arsenal should finish in the top four you'd expect Man City to obviously keep their place in the top four as well Two words. Who are the other two? I mean, one of them might be a two-word answer, to be fair, but <laughs> who are the two teams that we see in the top four? You know, I, I think I think Newcastle probably get in. I, I think that the, the league is is weak enough whereby, a te- I mean, I know Newcastle spent money, but actually the team that they're playing isn't too dissimilar to the one that they had in last season, which was struggling at the bottom of the league. But I think the league's weak enough where Newcastle can get in. I think the other team They'll probably be Man United. Old call. We'll come back to you in May and we'll see whether we've got that one right. You're not making one. You're just making me. I, I, I just did a hosting, mate. That's all I do. I never make oh, any okay. predictions or give any opinions. Um, Connor, thanks for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time as ever. And of course, thank you to everyone for listening as well. Um, you can stay up to date throughout this January transfer window and of course past it as well uh, with all the latest from Mirror, the Express and Daily Star. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye.